Well, Carl Truman, the author of The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, uh, stated this in an interview. He says, I think the problem in the United States is that Protestant evangelicals thought they owned the nation, and it's becoming patently obvious they don't own it anymore if they ever did. Now, you may not exactly agree with Truman's assessment of the problem in our nation, but certainly I think we can all agree with his sentiment. Over the last decade or so, whatever power, whatever influence the church had over culture and politics has certainly declined. Add all of that uh, to the loss of cultural and political influence is the changing demographics and worldview among Generation Z. Gen Z is those born between 1997 and 2012, and in 2024 are those who are between the ages of 12 and 27. And researchers uh, draw three Uh, draw our attention to three notable characteristics about them. Uh, First, Gen Z all grew up with social media and smartphones. They're used to living in a digital first world. The second, based on data taken in 2020, only 49% of Gen Z is white, making Gen Z the first minority generation. But finally, Gen Z is far less religious than any of the previous generations. Only 22% of Gen Z identifies as Protestant Christian as opposed to 45% of the rest of the nation. Only 8 to 12% of Gen Z identifies as evangelical Christian as compared to 29% of the rest of the nation. And in many major cities, only 3 to 5% of Gen Z identifies as evangelicals, making them what some have called the first post-Christian generation, setting them actually on par with some significant difference to an unreached people group. Though unlike unreached people groups, they've heard of Jesus, they've seen churches, It is likely, like unreached people groups, they have never been exposed directly to the gospel, never known really what Christianity is about. And so all of that means we are currently experiencing a major shift in culture and worldview in our nation, which represents, uh, excitingly, a major opportunity for the gospel and for the advancement of God's kingdom. Uh, Yet as I was even talking with someone yesterday, for those of us who remember a time not that long ago uh, when Christian values shaped more of the nation, uh, when there was more influence of Christianity over the culture, uh, that this is something being stolen from us. It's disorienting. And in the midst of such great changes, the temptation is one of two things. Either... We despair over what's been lost, and we sink into hopelessness. Or we fight tooth and nail to regain the power and influence that has been taken from us. However, the biblical reality is that whatever cultural influence, whatever political power the church once had in this nation, this world and this nation in particular has never been our home. Rather, as Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. Or as Peter says, we are sojourners and exiles simply passing through. Add to all this, this is not the first time the people of God have experienced such a disorienting change in the culture and power among them. In 6th century BC, the people of Israel, God's chosen people, experienced a dramatic change in circumstances. Judah's king and kingdom were conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And many of those people were taken out of their home to live in a land that was not their home. This is what's called exile. And in exile, they experienced different gods. 
different cultural norms, different moral values. They were living in an entirely different way of life than they did in Israel. And it's these circumstances that the book of Daniel describes. And as Pastor David Helm explains, the earliest readers would have been Jews living sometime between 525 B.C. and 170 B.C., depending on your view of the historical evidence. And both ends of those timelines share two things in common. Israel is without a king, and at least any king of consequence, and they're without a kingdom that could rightly be called their own. The early readers of Daniel suffered a loss of political autonomy. In fact, they were subject to a life of subservience under other powerful nations. And though they were still religious, their modes of worship were increasingly relegated to those as negotiated freedoms that could only be granted by those in power. And it's in the midst of those kinds of circumstances the book of Daniel is offered and offers to us hope, teaching us how to live in exile, teaching us how to live in a country, a nation that's not our home, with different values, different norms, different gods, neither with despair nor with combativeness, but instead with faithfulness to Christ and hope in our sovereign God who never changes even as the nations of this world come and go. And so like the people of Judah, we're not living in Israel anymore with a shared set of values, convictions rooted in the God of the Bible. No, now we are living in Babylon. And so over the next three months, we'll be walking through Daniel in a series we've called Living in Exile. And the book of Daniel can loosely be divided into two sections. Now, chapters 1 through 6 focus on the prophet and share and a way in which we can be faithful in exile. And then chapters 7 through 12 focus on the prophecies of Daniel and offer hope for us as we live in exile. And yet, as pastor and scholar Brian Chappell points out, this structure often leads to two common but erroneous approaches to the book of Daniel. The first is to make Daniel the object of our worship. And the second is to make Daniel the subject of our debates. So we're tempted to make Daniel the object of our worship in the first half of the book, which is largely a biography of his life. Daniel's courage and faithfulness in a land of cruelty and captivity can easily tempt us to make Daniel the primary hero of this book. And in doing so, we neglect Daniel's own message. He's not the hero. God is the hero. But then the second half of the book, which contains most of the prophetic content, can make us susceptible to the second error making Daniel primarily the subject of our debates, particularly about eschatology or the study of end times. This book contains some of the most amazing and detailed prophecies in all of Scripture. And centuries in advance, Daniel predicts events as momentous as the succession of empires. He relates details as precise as the symptoms of a disease that will uh, slay a future king. Daniel also then speaks of the future of the people of God and visions that are hard to understand and that relate to some events that are still future to us. And these are all important prophecies we'll consider in due time, but we can become so stressed and combative about the interpretation of these particular prophecies that we neglect the central message. God will rescue his people from their sin through a Messiah. In fact, he has already done so, and that Messiah will reign over the nations forever. And so as we consider the faithful example of Daniel and his friends and the difficult yet hope-filled prophecies of Daniel, we'll need to work hard to remember that the ultimate point 
is to encourage us to be faithful and hopeful, not because Daniel and his friends are faithful and hopeful, but rather because the God of Daniel is our God. And that God has been incredibly gracious to us. And he is in control of all things, even the clear marginalization of Christianity and the church in our culture. So today in particular, as we look at the first chapter of Daniel, we'll see that this text is tailored to teach us to prioritize faithfulness to Christ more than influence over our culture. And we'll see this by considering three reasons we must prioritize faithfulness to Christ more than influence over our culture. First, because God has placed us in exile. Second, because God gives us the grace to be faithful. And third, because God will determine the extent of our influence. But before we jump into this wonderful story, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage, we confess that we are approaching another election year with a variety of emotions, anxiety, fear, hopefulness. And Lord, we ask that as you open your word to us, that you would still those fears, still those anxieties, and help us to place our hope in the right place. And so, Lord, we ask more than anything else that you would help us to see Jesus, his faithfulness. And that would enable us to to be faithful to him no matter what we face. So, Lord, I ask that you would help me to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and passionately so that we would come to treasure Christ all the more and be eager to live faithfully for him each day no matter the cost. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you've not turned there yet, I invite you to open uh, your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible to follow along, you'll be helped to grab one of our community Bibles either under your chair or the chair next to you. And if you're not familiar with the scriptures and Daniel in particular, uh, you can find Daniel on page 736 of our community Bibles. You'll be looking for a big, bold one. That's a chapter. And if you don't have a Bible, please consider this our gift to you. We would be delighted uh, for you to engage God's Word week to week and day to day as you leave from here. And if you need help knowing where to start, uh, please talk with me or any of our members after the service. We'd love to help orient you to how you can engage God's Word. But once you've found Daniel chapter 1, please just take a moment to quiet and ready your own heart. You know what fears you have about the current cultural moment we're living in. Ask that God would speak the word of hope and comfort that you need to hear this morning from Daniel. Well, if you're ready to receive God's word, say, I'm ready. ready. Look with me. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels from the house of God. And he, the king of Babylon, brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. And he urged them to teach the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, 
and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them the names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. So here we see in these first seven verses that we must prioritize faithfulness to Christ more than influence over culture because God has placed us in exile. Because God has placed us in exile. So our passage begins with what would have been devastating news. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has besieged Jerusalem. And he's won the battle. He's taken back the vessels from the house of God into the temple of his God in the land of Shinar. This is a reference to the origins of Babylon in Genesis 11, where people in Shinar are seeking to make a name for themselves by making a great tower that would rise to the heavens. This is in the land of Shinar, and the tower is called Babel. And so as an act of judgment in that time, God confuses the languages in order to scatter the people from there. But now, thousands of years later, the people of Babel have sieged the people of God. They've taken vessels belonging to the God of Israel and placed them in the temple of their God. And as Dale Davis writes, there's no doubt about how the media would view this. In the ancient Near East, the fortunes of a God and a people were viewed together. That Judah's king and temple's vessels were taken simply meant that the Lord was not able to protect his people. If the people were losers, it meant that the Lord was a loser. Much like the Olympics, if an athlete representing his nation loses, you can say the nation lost. And so if a nation, uh, an athlete loses, it's Kenya that lost. If an athlete from Germany loses, it's Germany that lost. If it's, a, if it's an, athlete, uh, an athlete from USA, USA lost. That is the identification. And so when the people of Judah lost, the God of Judah was lost. And further, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want to stop simply with a great victory over the people of God and God himself. He wants to make the people of Judah some of the finest of Babylon's civil servants. And so King Nebuchadnezzar orders Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring back to Babylon the cream of the crop. So there to be people from the royal family and nobility so that one day they might have influence over the people if he ever sends them back. There to be youth, probably teenagers around 13, 14, or 15 years of age, likely so that they would be able and willing to learn new things. They're also to be physically without blemish and good in appearance, as well as having skill and wisdom and knowledge. Also that they would have the physical and mental ability to learn and become advisors to the king. They're going to, in verse 5, at the end of their training, stand before the king as his advisors. The king wanted the best of the best as his royal advisors in the court. And the plan the king has for these youths could rightfully be called enculturation. He wanted to turn these exiles from Judah into Babylonians. They would be taught the literature and language of the Babylonians, no doubt, to learn the great myths and stories of the Babylonian gods and cultures, hoping to make converts out of them, that they would no longer worship the God of Judah, but worship the gods of the Babylons. They would eat the king's food, adopting Babylonian culture practices. And significantly, they received Babylonian names. Now, in our day, names mean next to nothing. So this may not make sense to us why this is such a big deal. But in those days, names had special meaning, identifying them as God's people, 
And the change of name was meant to identify them no longer with their God, but the gods of Babylon. So Daniel's name means God is my judge. And he's renamed Belteshazzar, which likely means may Bel, one of the gods of Babylon, protect my life. Hananiah, whose name means Yahweh has acted graciously, is renamed to Shadrach, which likely means inspired by the sun god, Aku. Azariah, whose name means Yahweh has helped, is renamed Abednego, which means likely servant of the shining fire, a reference to the fire god. And Mishael, which means who is like our God and who is what God is, is renamed Meshach, which means who can be compared to Shak, the name under which the Babylonians worship the goddess of Venus. This whole process then is intended by the king to turn these exiles into subjects of the Babylonian king, servants of the Babylonian god, and eventually representatives of Babylonian culture. And so truly all that's just taken place in these few short verses would have been felt by the people of Judah as a complete loss. It may have even signaled to them that God's covenant promises that were centuries old in the making were now evaporating like the morning mist into thin air. This was a truly horrifying and hopeless situation. And before we go on to consider the main significance of this, one thing, parents, I want you to notice is this is essentially what we're preparing our children for. Our goal is to teach them God's truth and to model Christian integrity so that when they find themselves no longer in your home, living in Babylon, they would be able to resist the enculturation of Babylon. They would be able to resist captivity to the secular culture of our world. And so I would plead with you, keep that goal in mind through all of your family and parenting decisions. As you set the schedule for your family, think, what will help my children to embrace the culture of Christ rather than the culture of this world? As you think about educational options, the things you're doing in your home, think about what will help them to live faithfully as exiles in a world that's not their home. What will help them to be in the world, yet different from the world? And both sides of this equation are important. We neither want to raise children who have withdrawn from the world and are unengaged in God's mission, nor do we want to raise children who are indistinguishable from the world. Rather, as we raise our children, we want them to know and love Jesus in such a way that they would be different from the world around them. And yet... We also want them to know and love the lost in such a way that they are present with the lost, pointing them to the hope that they might find in Jesus. But far more significantly than this little parental nugget, I want all of us to notice that what seems like an absolutely devastating loss for God's people and for God himself was actually given by God. Look in verse 2. It tells us, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. As one scholar puts it, it was not Nebuchadnezzar's military might nor brilliance that brought about the downfall of Jerusalem. It was the sovereign will of God. Judah's exile is from God himself. And the same is true for us today. Whatever influence has been lost, whatever power has been taken, actually has been taken from us by the power and hand of our sovereign God. And while we don't know why God has done that, and we shouldn't speculate, we know that because he is behind it, there is no room for despair. Because he's in control. He is a good and faithful and sovereign God. And so whatever he has orchestrated is for our good and his glory. 
nor do we need to fight at all costs to regain whatever influence we lost, as if the Lord would be pleased with Christians gaining more influence after compromising our integrity and neglecting the fruit of the Spirit. As we exchange joy for bitterness, or kindness for sarcasm, or exchange gentleness for anger, or exchange patience for urgent demands that the culture change now, the Lord will not be pleased with such compromises in our life. And as we'll soon see, the Lord will give us whatever influence He sees fit. And so in the meantime, our role is to use whatever influence He has or has not given us while prioritizing faithfulness to Christ, rejoicing in Christ, trusting Christ, that whatever is going on is under His sovereign control. Because even apparent loss, apparent defeat, is actually under the sovereign hand of God. It's all being held together by Jesus. And so first, we must prioritize faithfulness to Christ more than influence over our culture because God is the one who's brought us here. God is the one who has placed us in exile. Second, look with me at verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. So then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Here we see that we must prioritize faithfulness to Christ more than influence over culture because God has given us the grace to be faithful. Because God has given us the grace to be faithful. Now it's striking that Daniel and his friends did not choose to fight a Babylonian education. They did not choose to fight the battle over what names they would be called. But they did choose, as verse 8 tells us, not to defile themselves by eating the king's food or drinking the king's wine. Now, it's not entirely clear why the king's food and wine would defile Daniel and his friends. Several options have been offered. I can walk you through all of them after the service if you're interested. But since it's not clear why, as Pastor David Helm points out, whatever it was, it's clear that while a change in name was tolerable and education in the secular Babylonian school was acceptable, giving in to the requirement to eat the king's food would have stripped Daniel and his friends of their relationship to God in ways they just could not accept. Their consciences simply would not allow it. And so Daniel resolved to follow his conscience rather than the king's command. And this decision to refuse to eat the king's food while enduring Babylonian education and name changes teaches us one incidental lesson and one important lesson. First, the incidental lesson is that a secular education in Babylon was not something to be feared by God's people. And historians like Mark Knoll and leaders like Charles Malik have pointed out 
that the Christian retreat from secular institutions of higher learning and the establishment of an alternative education system, largely a closed system focused on keeping the world up, has had some negative consequences. There are a large group of Christians who are not only unfamiliar with the makeup of the hearts and minds of their non-Christian counterparts, but are content to live without them. And when this happens, the church turns inward and isolates itself. Over time, it becomes an institution that has lost sight of its mission to call non-Christians to live under the power of the gospel. Now, let me just be clear here right up front. Daniel is not an education textbook telling us how we ought to educate our children. Uh, All sorts of educational options are available to Christian parents. Homeschool, public school, private school, all legitimate forms that Christian parents can put their children in. State schools, Christian universities, private universities are all legitimate forms of college education for Christians. And often parents put way too much pressure on what way they're going to educate their children, thinking that that will help them turn out as children who know and follow Jesus. But just to be really clear, God does not promise the way you educate your child, whether it's homeschool, private school, or public school, will make them a Christian. No guarantee like that. So we need to make decision, whatever it is, and then trust the Lord. But what Daniel's decision reveals is that fear is not an appropriate motivation for avoiding public schools or state universities. Just as Daniel did, it is possible to attend public schools, state universities, and resist the pressure to abandon the Christian faith. And not only is it possible to resist the pressure to abandon the Christian faith, but it's also possible, as we'll see, for the Lord to use that, to use a Christian's presence in such environment for the good of the lost there and for his own glory. And so this isn't the right path for everyone, but it would not be good if all Christians left the public school system, if all Christians decided not to go to state universities. And so I would commend some of you to consider public schools. And students who are beginning to think about college, I would commend to some of you to begin to think about going to a state university. The field is ripe for harvest there, especially in light of what's going on in Gen Z being uh, the first post-Christian generation. And practically, you'll notice one of the ways that Daniel is able to resist the pressure to assimilate to the secular culture is with the help of friends. The best way for us to remain faithful to Christ is through dependence upon the community that God has placed around us, and in particular, the local church. And so just as a quick plug to those of you who are about to head off to college, if you want to remain faithful to Christ when you go off to college, the best way you can do that, and the biggest predictor of whether or not you'll do that, is not whether or not you go to a Christian school, but whether or not that first Sunday you go to church. And the next Sunday you go back, and you eventually commit yourself to a people who will help walk you through a new environment, a new culture, where you may be facing pressures on your faith in a different way. And so commit yourself to the local church wherever you go. But all of us, not just students, need to labor to resist assimilating to secular culture without fearing the secular culture as Daniel did. The second and far more important lesson is how essential it is to prioritize faithfulness over influence. As Pastor Mark Dever points out, surely they were tempted by the thought, if I just eat a little food, I'll be in a more influential position and have more opportunities to serve God. How many sins have been committed in Washington, D.C. in the name of wanting to not lose an opportunity? 
How many individuals have been willing to pay an incidental moral price in order to not lose that great opportunity? Now, in a representative democracy like ours, different opinions must be represented, at least until we are all clones of one person. But even then, knowing some of us, we would still disagree. So legislative compromise are essential for our type of government. But I'm talking about moral compromise, the abandoning of principles, the breaking of God's law. And there is no such compromise found here in Daniel. And so as we head towards yet what will prove to be, I'm sure, another difficult election season, we need to wrestle with where are we tempted to compromise faithfulness in order to have an influence over our nation and our culture. Personally, I remember growing up learning essentially two principles for how to vote. Principle one, vote for candidates who demonstrate consistent honesty, moral purity, and the highest character. In fact, the Southern Baptist Convention, the denomination I grew up in, resolved in response to Bill Clinton's infidelity to urge all Americans to embrace and act on the conviction that character does count in public office and to elect those officials and candidates who, although imperfect, demonstrate consistent honesty, moral purity, and the highest character. That's principle one. Vote for candidates with character. Principle two, vote for candidates who have a demonstrated commitment to being pro-life. Those are the only two principles I was ever taught about voting. Now, that first principle was put to test in 2016, 2020, and will once again be put to test in 2024 with Trump as a Republican nominee. The second principle is going to be put to test this year with the overturning of Roe. Because for the first time since Roe was put in place, Candidates have to choose not just about being anti-Roe, but are they going to be in favor of sponsoring bans on abortion or placating pro-choice voters? And at this point, almost all of the Republican nominees have indicated they are unwilling to support a federal ban on abortion, with the exception of one who is right now playing the political game and being ambiguous about what he thinks. Now, I don't know how many of us have embraced those two principles, uh, the principle for voting for the candidate of highest character and voting for candidates who are committed to being pro-life. However, given that in 2016 and in 2020, 77% and 84% of white evangelicals did not vote for a candidate who demonstrated the highest character, and in 2024, we may not even have a consistently pro-life option to vote for, I think it would be wise for us to consider what that inconsistency or potential inconsistency might reveal before we're in the throes of another election. So here's a couple questions I'd encourage each of us to reflect on. So first, does that inconsistency or potential inconsistency simply reveal the, the principles of voting for candidates of character and for candidates who are consistently pro-life was never really embraced by most evangelical Christians? Uh, that is, though Christian pastors and leaders may have thought that and taught that, The ordinary, average Christian never embraced that. That's possible. Second, does that inconsistency or possible inconsistency simply reveal that those two principles are bad principles to use in voting? That is, even though we all agree that abortion is murder and sinful and that we would like to have politicians of character, uh, that those principles simply aren't useful principles to help Christians think about who they should vote for. On the pro-life question... You might think about uh, the UK or Germany, where no party has connected itself to either pro-life or pro-choice. That's simply not a principle they're thinking about. Third, 
Does that inconsistency reveal that while those principles are good and useful, they aren't the only important principles, and that other issues matter as much or more than them? In other words, if we can have someone who is pro-life and of good character, great, but actually someone's policies regarding economics, religious liberty, foreign policy, and so on, matter as much or more than those first two. And fourth, and this will be the question that may sting for some of us, especially in view of Daniel, does the inconsistency or potential inconsistency reveal that those two principles were really just a smokescreen to biblically justify our political tribe? It was never really about being faithful to God, but about getting the person we wanted in office, having our influence exerted over the nation. And though we claim those principles in the past, that's not actually what was driving who we were voting for. And so a related question to that that might expose that in us is looking ahead, what would your political tribe have to compromise on in order for them to lose your vote? And if there's nothing they could do to lose your vote, then you need to wrestle with before the Lord whether that reveals your compromising faithfulness to Christ in order to maintain some semblance of influence over the culture. You need to wrestle with whether, as one person recently put it, Christianity is shaping your politics or politics is shaping your Christianity. Now, let me be really upfront here. I am not suggesting that there is one single way Christians can vote to be faithful. I am not actually saying what principles we ought to use to vote. I'm raising questions for you. But my burden as your pastor is that we would not be beholden to any political party. We would not be beholden to any political ideology, but that we would be beholden to Christ. And that we would be allowing our faithfulness and commitment to him to shape our politics and not the other way around. And so I want to invite all of us then to search our hearts. These aren't easy questions to answer. Personally, I wrestle with them every so often, especially every four years. But our call as Christians is to prioritize faithfulness to Christ more than influence over the culture. And so practically, I want to urge us to do three things. First, Paul says in Romans that each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. That is, we're not to treat disputable matters like this as something that doesn't matter or that we don't care about. No, you need to be fully convinced and then honor the Lord with your vote wherever you come down. But second, I would plead with you, please, please do not violate your conscience by voting for someone just because you're afraid of what will happen if someone else wins. Do not violate your conscience by voting for someone you think is unfit for the office just in order to maintain influence over our culture for the next four years. And then third, please do not urge others to violate their conscience By all means, have conversations, seek to persuade minds and change people's attitudes towards what is the best path forward. But if someone says, in good conscience, I cannot vote for that person, please don't urge them to violate their conscience. We need to be faithful to the Lord, and each of us individually will give an account to him one day. For the last several election cycles, we've heard everyone say, that the stakes couldn't be higher, therefore you need to vote for my candidate or against the other candidate. And who knows how people will invoke the Lord's name this year in order to say this candidate is from hell or whatever it might be. But whatever the stakes are, 
we need to remember the Lord is in control. And the reality is, politics are not the only way that we're tempted to compromise faithfulness in order to gain influence. We're tempted towards that in a variety of ways. In teens, one of the unique ways I think you are tempted to do this is through peer pressure. There are simply a variety of ways we want to fit in with our friends. But remember, if you are in Christ, you're going to be different than all your friends. The expectation is that you would not be normal. You would not fit in. And the Lord's promise to you is if that you will prize the acceptance and love of Christ more than the acceptance of your peers, that he will give you many brothers, sisters, mothers, aunts, uncles in the church. And this is what we as a church family want to be for you. We want to be a family so that even if you don't fit in with your peers, you have a place and a family you can call home. So I would plead with you, give yourself to living faithfully and holy. Ignore the temptations of your peers. Commit yourselves to faithfully holding to unpopular yet orthodox Christian teaching. I know it will be hard to lose the acceptance and approval of some of your friends, but it will be worth it. And all of us, same goes for us, where we feel the pressure to compromise on holiness to compromise on faithfulness, to defile ourselves. It will be worth it to fight that and remain faithful to the Lord. We've seen Daniel resolve not defiling himself, even though it may have gained him more influence. But one of the questions our text raises is, how does he go about doing that? How does he stay faithful under pressure? And we see both a practical strategy and a bigger principle. The practical strategy in verse 8 is simply to go to his immediate supervisor, who is not the king issuing all these, and to ask Ashpenaz to allow them not to defile themselves. And although he has compassion on these exiles from Judah, he fears King Nebuchadnezzar's wrath more. And we'll see for good reason. Nebuchadnezzar is always wanting to put people to death. And so he declines their request. And in the face of Ashpenaz's refusal, Daniel does not throw a religious hissy fit, blowing off steam about Babylon's heavy-handedness and insensitivity. He simply looks around for the next way that he might be faithful to see where that will land him. And so Daniel was not one of those people who believed that the firmness of principle always involves acting stubborn and pig-headed. And so instead, Daniel goes next to the guard, one step down from Ashpenaz, and asks for a test. They'll eat and drink only vegetable and water for 10 days. They'll compare their appearance. And then whatever the outcome, they're going to trust themselves to this guard. And this time, the guard agrees to their test. And this, again, is instructive to us practically as we think about Christianity becoming more marginalized in our culture and as there's more pressure to cave into secular ideology. So if in the course of your work or your studies, you feel pressured to compromise your biblical convictions or conscience, the model Daniel gives us is helpful. So, for example, if you're working for a company and the policy all of a sudden is you need to state your preferred pronouns and begin to acknowledge other people by their preferred pronouns, if something like that happens, whether it's that or something else, don't throw a hissy fit. Don't throw a fit about how the school or company is trampling on your religious rights. Instead, quietly, respectfully, go to your immediate supervisor. Explain to them your conundrum. Offer an alternative solution. See how they respond. And if they shoot down your alternative, 
Just keep looking for another way to be faithful. But I think we'll be surprised by how many people in that middle level would be willing to work with good employees, good students, and are to keep them. Which means you're being a good student or you're being a good employee in the first place. But many will work and be willing to compromise. Yet we should also be prepared. That means sometimes we need to be prepared for the possibility we will get a failing grade or we will lose our jobs. Even though that's not what happened to Daniel, that is something that could happen. And as the early church did, then we as a church need to be preparing ourselves financially to support those who might lose their jobs for faithfulness to Christ. So that the financial risk is not one of the reasons why they would choose not to be faithful to Christ. But beyond engaging his supervisors winsomely, there's a much bigger reason Daniel is able to remain faithful. Notice again, the second time in our passage, what God gives. The Lord gave in verse 9, favor or grace. The reason Daniel and his friends are given a way to escape defilement is because God in his grace grants them favor and compassion before Ashpenaz and then before the guard. Further, the results of their 10-day test was also an act of grace. Now, many English translations obscure this, but as the ESV and NASB says in verse 15, at the end of 10 days, they were eating vegetables and drinking water. They were literally fatter in flesh. Now, you might not be aware of this because many of us don't eat vegetables, but eating vegetables has never made anyone fatter. Never made anyone fatter. More nourished, yes. Healthier, yes. Better appearance, maybe. But fatter in flesh, not once. And this is an act of God's grace then. That after meals for 10 days on vegetables and water, they are actually fatter in flesh than all their companions. And this is what God has promised. God does not promise that we will always have influence over the culture, the world, our friends. In fact, we're told we ought to expect we will be hated and despised for his namesake. But what God does promise is that he will always provide us the grace we need to remain faithful. He will always provide us the grace to escape defilement. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. Therefore, beloved, flee from idolatry. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when you are tempted to compromise faithfulness, remember that God will provide a way of escape. When you are tempted to defile yourself, God will provide a way for you to resist temptation. God will always provide one so you can flee idolatry, including the idol of winning friends and influencing others. And this is, in fact, what Jesus did for all of us. Many of us would have read this week Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And among other things, what was Jesus tempted for? He was tempted to get the glory, the fame, all the things that would come to him that God had planned to come through the cross. After he died, rose, and then ascended. He was tempted to gain all those things, though, without the cross. The temptation was to gain influence by compromising the mission he was given. Yet praise God. On our behalf, Jesus was faithful. He said no to the temptation and suffered all the way to the cross. By the cross, 
He might secure our forgiveness, but he also might secure the grace we need to be faithful even in these moments. So that now, as Peter says, we have everything we need, every grace for life and godliness. That is what Jesus bought for us through his faithfulness in the wilderness, his faithfulness to the cross, and through his victorious resurrection from the grave. We must prioritize faithfulness to Christ more than influence over culture because God has given us the grace to be faithful. Finally, look with me at verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Here we see that we must prioritize faithfulness to Christ over more than influence over our culture because God determines the extent of our influence. God will determine the extent of our influence. And so as our passage concludes, we learn that God gave one more thing. Over the course of their education in Babylon, God blesses Daniel and his friends for their faithfulness with learning and skill and Daniel with supernatural understanding of visions and dreams. And all of this is given by God. Knowing these two words, God gave, is what both calls us and equips us to make similar commitments to remain morally and religiously pure in a pagan world. Knowing that God gave should instill confidence us to engage in the academy, in our jobs, and in our wider community. So I'd ask you this morning, do you believe those words that God gave? God gives. Those two words can change our outlook on life. And the result of God's gifts to Daniel and his friends is that when they stood before their king, now three years later, no longer as 13, 14, or 15-year-olds, but as the 16, 17, or 18-year-olds, he found the four of them, as teenagers, better than all of the magicians and enchanters in his kingdom. And as a result of the gifts the Lord had given them, we'll see in coming weeks that they were given positions of honor, authority, and influence over the entire Babylonian kingdom. And Daniel himself, the exile from Judah, we see in the end of our text for today, outlasts the Babylonian kingdom. He's there for 70 years, likely in his 80s, when King Cyrus from Persia comes into power and influence. And Daniel then is able to influence him to send the people back to Jerusalem. This is just one more reminder to us as a church and teens and kids to you that you can have a significant influence even over the nation if you would give yourself to being faithful to Christ here and now. If you would surrender your life to him and his purposes for your life, the Lord could use you to influence the whole nation, even as he used Daniel and his friends. But surprisingly to us, as Pastor David Helm points out, it's the person of godly resolve who lives in accordance with God's way They're actually the one who is most useful in the world. And sometimes the world recognizes this. We often think that we will have less influence and be less important in the world when we choose to walk in God's ways. And that is often true. We think, though, we will necessarily be marginalized. 
Well, this story from Daniel's life demonstrates that in following God, we can actually become more useful. We can actually find favor both with God and man. And yet, as we've already said, God does not promise such influence to every person. God will determine whether, as in the case of Daniel and his friends, we have influence over an entire nation, or whether, as the majority of the people of Judah in exile, whether we lose our influence almost altogether. And that means our influence over culture should not be our goal. Rather, our goal should be to be ready for whatever influence the Lord gives us. And so I'd ask you this morning, will you be ready? Are you devoting yourself now to faithfulness to Christ in all things? Are you cultivating a love for Christ through his word? Are you cultivating a dependence upon his spirit through prayer? Are you repenting of sin and trusting Jesus, pursuing holiness? Are you forsaking the fruit of the flesh in order to walk by the spirit and the fruit of the spirit? And that's how God would have you prepare for whatever influence he would entrust to you. To work on your character to work on your growth in Christ until he entrusts you more influence. So listen, we must, must prioritize faithfulness to Christ more than influence over the culture, especially in exile. And we do this because God will determine the extent of our influence, because God has given us the grace to be faithful, and because God has placed us in exile. And as we begin to wrap up our time in God's word, though we need to be careful that on all our attention to learn from Daniel, we don't forget, as I said earlier, to learn from the one who Daniel points. New Testament scholar Danny Aiken writes this. Like Daniel and his friends, the Son of God would leave his home and willingly embrace a sinful world without defiling himself even once. Like these Hebrew boys, he would find favor with God and men. When he was still a child, his teachers were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom of God. Christ is the greater Daniel, the greater Hananiah, the greater Mishael, the greater Azariah. Jesus refused to compromise when he faced the emperor behind the emperor, Satan himself. And again, how did Satan tempt Jesus to defile himself? He did so by offering to give Jesus the influence and glory he was owed as the Son of God and would receive at his ascension from the grave Yet without the cross, where he would have to suffer for our sake. Yet Christ remained faithful to the mission he had been sent to fulfill. Christ took the judgment faithless Israel deserved at the hands of another pagan empire. But he walked away from death to outlast the Roman Empire and every empire to come. And so now, by his death and resurrection, all who trust in him will live forever with the King of kings and the Lord of lords and his eternal palace. And so I would plead with us, be strong and of good courage in whatever God calls you to do. He is with you and he is accomplishing so much more than meets the eye. And by leaning on his grace, we too can have the strength and the power to prioritize faithfulness to Christ more than influence over our culture. And so as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we celebrate the fact that Jesus did not compromise his mission, but was faithful all the way to the cross, where he gave his body and shed his blood for each of us. But we remember that the greatest victory of all time came through what seemed like the most devastating defeat. Yet even the cross 
was in the hands of God. And now, for those who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, we receive a new homeland, a better country, a heavenly one, and we have been incorporated into a new family of the church. So look around for a moment and see your brothers and sisters in Christ. These have been given to you by God to help you remain faithful to Jesus, to resist defilement, to resist temptation, and to remain faithful. And it is these great gifts that we come to the Lord's table together to celebrate. But before we take part in the Lord's Supper, Paul warns us, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so before we come to the table, I want to invite us to examine ourselves for three things. First, examine yourself to see if you are in Christ. If you have not turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus, this is not the meal for you. And I would encourage you to use this time to consider Christ, who was faithful on your behalf, to suffer and die a brutal death on the cross. But far more importantly, suffer the wrath of God so that you could be reconciled to God, so that you could be forgiven, loved, and embraced by Him. And if you would like to know more about what it looks like to receive that gift, Come talk with me after the service or any of our members. We'd love to tell you more. But second, I'd call all of us to examine our relationships within the body of Christ. Uh, One of the primary concerns that leads Paul to say, this church in Corinth is taking the supper in an unworthy manner is the division that runs through the church. And so if there is any forgiveness you have not extended, if there is any broken relationships you have not sought to mend, if there is any bitterness in your heart that you are nursing rather than releasing, And take a moment right now to consider the grace of God towards you. Consider the magnitude of your sin, the debt you owed against an infinitely holy God, and yet the forgiveness and grace you received when Christ went to the cross on your behalf. And let that grace, that mercy, move your heart to extend forgiveness to your brother and sister in Christ, and then go and be reconciled. But then third... And I invite us all to examine ourselves for unrepentant sin. We all come to Jesus as sinners, and we come to the table as sinners. Otherwise, none of us would come. But the mark of a Christian is that we repent of known sin. And so here I'm not asking you to try to examine every day for the last 30 days to see whether you sinned in a way that you didn't realize. Instead, I'm encouraging you to consider, is there a place, an area of sin in your life that you know, I'm holding on to this. I'm choosing this. I'm not willing to let go of this. And you're choosing that over Jesus. And if that's the case, I would plead with you once again, consider the grace of God. Consider his love for you. Ask yourself, is it worth it? And the answer is not. If you would release that thing, you can come forward for a fresh experience of God's grace, even today. Because his grace is sufficient for you. And if the Spirit doesn't stir up anything through these prompts, then just use the time before we come to the table to reflect on what God has been saying to you through his word this morning. And perhaps these questions will help you. How does it comfort you to know that the loss of Christian influence over our culture is under God's control? Resolve in view of his sovereignty, not to be embittered, angry, or despairing over what's been lost but to rejoice in him and his very good plans. 
What steps can you take to resist assimilation to secular culture without fearing secular culture? Related, where are you tempted to compromise faithfulness to Christ in order to gain influence over others? Ask for the Holy Spirit to help you value the love and grace of Jesus more than you love the approval of others or influence over our culture. And finally, if the Lord grants you influence over the world, whether that's friends, classmates, coworkers, family, employees, will you be ready to use your influence for the glory of God? Commit yourself today to grow in grace and godliness now so you'll be ready if he gives it to you. Let's take a moment to consider what God has been saying to us through his word.